Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. So I hope you've had a great week. Um, Today we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew or the book of Matthew, where today specifically we're going to start working through Jesus's most famous uh, teachings. Uh, Well, we're starting on the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, and and we're specifically going to look at today what's called the Beatitudes, which simply come from the Latin word meaning blessed. And so Jesus starts this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, this, this famous teaching section. Jesus has calls everybody to come together, and this is the first time in Matthew that he's going to explain out to us what Jesus' sermons look like, how he taught, what he was concerned with. And he starts off this sermon speaking about and talking about anyone who's looking to be blessed. And that word blessed can be tricky, but it's if you're looking to be blessed, if you're living, looking to live a happy life, it can also be translated as happy. This is what Jesus starts off with. Hey, if you're looking to be happy, if you're looking to be blessed, if you want to see God do things in your life and through your life, if that's what you're looking for, he says, lean in. And since every person on this planet is on a happiness quest, everybody, everybody's on a happiness quest. This should cause us all to lean in and learn from Jesus because Jesus knew that you want to be happy. Jesus knew that you wanted to experience a blessed life. And in fact, that's the kind of life Jesus wanted for you. You're like, oh, I don't know. What are you talking about, Brian? Read the opening pages of the Bible. When God created us, he created us in fellowship with him in this beautiful, amazing garden and gave us everything we could possibly need or want. So Jesus, God designed us to have this blessed life. But here's what we're going to find out about Jesus. We're going to find out that Jesus promises this blessed life to the most unlikely and unlucky people in society. And remember, Jesus' teaching draws out different type of people. Remember, Jesus was attracting the non-religious leaders. Jesus was attracting those who needed help, those who didn't have it all together. The prominent people, the ones who thought they had it figured out, well, they, they rejected people. But Jesus is drawing crowds from the ones who are sick, the ones who need help those who are hurting, those who don't have it all together. In fact, the people that society pushed out and said, you can't be around us, you can't eat with us, you can't come to our temple, you can't worship with us, you don't look like us, you don't act like us, you don't smell like us. So you're not welcome. That's the kind of people Jesus is hanging out with. And he tells these people that God sees you. He tells them that God's going to show them favor, that they can still have this happy and blessed life. And just because their current situation isn't ideal 
doesn't mean God's not going to work through that and in that. And so other words, just because you've been rejected by society, by your family, by your teachers, by your coworkers, by your boss, whatever that looks like for you, just because you've lived that way doesn't mean that God rejects you. Doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. You see, their society was very much like ours. They assumed, well, if I'm doing well, if my bank account's big enough, if my business is doing good, if I have the right title, if I have the right education, I mean, if life is going good, then I must be doing it a-okay, right? If I have the power, if I have the prestige, that must mean that God, no one would say this out loud, but they'd be like, that must mean God loves me a bit more, right? Because I, I got it. I got it all. So God must love me more. And if I'm not doing well, that must mean I'm doing something wrong. That must mean God doesn't love me. That must mean I'm in some type of sin or something's going on, and I don't even know what it is. So, so what, 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 what does this look like? But Jesus reverses their whole way, hopefully our way of thinking. He informs them that when it comes to the things of the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to what he wants to do in this world, well, it's something very different. And that things aren't always what they seem. And so Jesus starts off by proclaiming and casting a vision for the good life. Hashtag blessed. Right? This is what it's about. How to be blessed. How to live the good life. And interestingly enough, check this out, folks. It has nothing to do with toys, houses, cars, boats. It's nothing that you're going to have a bumper sticker of and be proud about. In fact, we learn from Jesus, this is important, we learn from Jesus that happiness and blessings have nothing to do with things. Because isn't that what we think? If I get that next thing, Jesus is like, nope, that doesn't lead to it at all. Jesus teaching us, Jesus teaches us that blessing and happiness comes from and is derived from your relationship with God and lived out with others. And if you want to find happiness, if you want this blessed life, Jesus tells us, he says, here's what it looks like. This is both a spiritual and social state. We don't want to overemphasize one over the other. He's cast the vision that this is what it looks like. It comes from and will always come from your love of God and your relationship with him and your relationship with other people. He starts off like this, Matthew 5, 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. And this goes hand in hand with what we learned a couple of weeks ago about Jesus' message and then what we learned a couple of weeks before that about John's message about this idea of needing to repent. Even if you think you have it all together, this idea that you need to repent in order to enter the kingdom of, heather, uh, kingdom of heaven. In other words, you need to understand and know your need for God. It's those who understand they don't have it together will have their needs met through Christ and his kingdom. And the opposite of poor in spirit is self-reliant and self-confident. You see, the poor in spirit know they are utterly dependent upon the grace of God. They have nothing, nothing to offer God. 
And here's what's interesting about this. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, this is present tense. This is right now. You can experience the kingdom now. The poor in spirit presently can experience the kingdom of heaven. So poor in spirit is necessary for salvation. It's how you find salvation. Living under the rule of God, trusting in him is where you will find happiness and live a blessed life. You see, those who accept God's rule will truly find life. They will find blessings. They will benefit of being his subjects, which sounds like a paradox. If I'm a servant, then I find freedom. Then I find life, to which God says yes. You're actually not free if you reject me. You're a slave to something else. But in me, you will find life. So blessed are the poor in spirit. Verse 4, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be, future tense, comforted. Now, the idea of mourning here isn't just about personal loss, although it may include that. But the idea of mourning here is the idea of the whole person, the whole life situation is just miserable, You ever looked at your life and said, man, this is terrible. Like, I wouldn't wish this on anybody. Y'all haven't experienced? I have. We're just like, this is horrible. So it's those who mourn, those who don't have it again. Again, who's he speaking to? The crowds who don't have it together, who don't have what everybody else have, who don't have the nice jobs, who don't have the fancy titles, who don't have all the the luxuries of life. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're mourning because your life situation is tough, You'll find comfort. You see, through Jesus Christ, there is hope for your situation. He doesn't say when, but we can count on in Christ that there is hope for our situation in Jesus Christ. Whether it's in this life or the life to come, Jesus promises, this is a big deal. Jesus promises if your situation's not good, you're going to be comforted through him and by him. The reversal of fortunes will take place place. In Jesus Christ, there is hope that there is something better. And this isn't the prosperity gospel. This is the actual gospel where Jesus promises that there is a better future through him. And I can tell you from personal experience, my my situation growing up was not ideal. And Jesus gave me a better life. And Jesus made me better at life in him. So he says through him, the idea of in Jesus, what he has to offer, you will receive comfort. It might not be right now, but you will be comforted. Verse five, he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And this one always bothered me. I was like, I don't, I don't want to be meek. I don't want to, I don't want to be like that. I want to be strong. All right. Just me? Y'all follow me? I was like, I I don't want to be like that. But then I learned something. You cannot be meek if you're weak. You cannot be meek if you're weak. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is self-restraint. Meekness is the ability to take over and take control, but refrain from doing so. 
You see, Jesus is described as meek, and he claims to have all power and authority. In fact, one instance in the gospel, we'll get to it later on, he claimed he can call a thousand angels to come to his aid. Talk about powerful. So meekness is not weakness. Jesus isn't saying you got to be a sissy. Jesus is saying it's your self-restraint. Don't just go taking things. Don't just go taking over, but hold back. Meekness is not weakness. It's actually being very powerful. You see, in the military, you run into all sorts of people, and I always thought it was cool to run into the special forces type of guys. I thought they were nifty Navy SEALs or Delta Forces, and they always have this one thing in common. Well, two things. Number one, they all have beards, so I'm just saying. So tough guys have beards. I'm just, I just want to throw that out there for everybody. But seriously, those guys are all so meek, you would never know what they're capable of. If you meet those guys, you'd never know. You'd never realize what they could do and how powerful and how capable they were because they were self-confident. They're like, I know what I can do. I'm not worried about what you think I can do. Like that, that's what meekness is, the ability to be strong, to take over, to conquer, but choose not to. And he says, will you inherit the earth? Meaning he will provide, he will give, you will receive from him. Instead of you taking over and taking control, he's going to take care of you. Remember, this is back then where Rome would take over or anybody would take over by force or might. And Jesus is saying, show restraint if you're my follower. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. I mean, talk about this felt need, right? It's not just, I want to do righteousness. This felt need, this inner desire, as if you can't live without it. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. See, righteousness is about seeking to live as God requires. This is a matter of priorities. Rather than filling your bellies, rather than meeting your needs and your wants and your desires, and it's all about me, 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 me. Y'all ever been on the me train? Yeah, finally you're agreeing. All right, we're getting there. You're being a little bit more honest. It took a bit. Yeah, this is all about me. He's like, no. It's not about you. It's when you're hunger and thirst, your inner desire and your inner being is thirsting for the righteousness of God. Meaning I want to see God's will be done. And he says it's when you find his righteousness, when you're seeking what he desires, what will you find? Be filled. All that other stuff leads to being hungry again, doesn't it? Leads to emptiness. That stuff we think, and he's like, no, no. Come, come be filled with what I have to offer, and you will find fullness. Verse 7. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, mercy and merciful is generally connected to the idea of forgiveness, but here it's a bit larger than that. It may include forgiveness, but it's even in, it's, 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 it's a bigger idea. So remember, being merciful and being forgiven, we're going to get to those sections um, we've talked about it here before, but that's a big deal. But this is seeing things from other people's perspective, being merciful. It's allowing other people to have faults. It's not quickly getting angry or upset, but you give allowance for someone else not having it all together. I mean, that simple idea could change the world. If when we met people and we were in meetings together with people and we hung out with people, we weren't always worrying about how someone got something wrong, we gave them some, some rope. We're like, it's okay. 
I'm not perfect, so they're not perfect. It's not our natural reaction, though. We like to pick people apart, huh? Like, oh, did you see what they did today? Whoo! But what's this promise? What's this attached to? What promise is this? If you show mercy, well, you will be shown mercy. And the opposite of that is what? If you like to nitpick and pull people apart, well, I guess you're not going to be shown mercy, are you? I don't want to live in that lane. Sure don't. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they will see God. And I hope your imagination kind of goes crazy there, because what does that even mean? You will see God. Now? Later? I don't know if I want to see God right now. I think it'd be kind of scary. I'm not going to lie. I don't think I could handle it. I think it'd freak me out. But what does it mean you will see God? Well, understanding this pure at heart, it's communicating this idea of innocence. It's this childlike faith. The, the best way to understand this is rather than being overcomplicated and oversophisticated, right? You ever met someone who overcomplicates everything? I feel like I've never met one. You probably are that one. I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's okay. Just talk to your friends. They know one. Pure at heart's about that childlike faith. Remember, Jesus said, let the children come to me, the innocence. And you see, I think at some point in life, I don't know when it is. We all have different ages. This happens. But somewhere along the way, we stop being awestruck by the majesty and beauty of God and his creation. When we just start going, mm, I've seen it before. When we moved out to the Appalachian Mountains the first year, we were just amazed. The first time the leaves started changing colors. And when I say we lived in the mountains, we lived on a mountain. It's not like near, kind of like how Conway is near the beach. Nope. We lived on a literal mountain. Our church was on a mountain. We were, we were in the mountains. And everywhere we went, we were amazed by the beauty of it. We were just awestruck. But after about three years, guess what? Ah, I've seen this before. Just kind of lose it. And somewhere along the way in life, we, we forget the beauty and the amazing and the majesty of God. And I think it's because we get too smart. We overcomplicate. We think we understand. But we lose sight of God. We lose sight of him working in this world. And so the pure at heart is this innocence, this childlike faith, this childlike trust in him. And he says, blessed. So if you're not the smartest guy in the world, you're Okay. Or gal in the woods, you're okay. The innocence, childlike faith, you're good to go. Makes me feel comforted, I'm just saying. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Now, peacemakers are not avoiding conflict altogether. We'll see through this gospel that Jesus is pretty clear about conflict. Conflict's inevitable. The gospel does one of two things. It unites or it divides. It unites or it divides. So the gospel is going to bring people together or it's going to cause people to split apart. Always has and always will. But peacemakers, peacemakers move towards a situation to bring about the peace of God. Rather than stirring up conflict, rather than egging people on and causing hostility, we bring peace and calmness. Reflecting the character of God to be uh, the, the character of, of God to be called His children. That when people see us, they're like, "Man, he's kind of acting like Jesus." He's like bringing people together and calm. Like this is a great thing, and these are the values of Jesus. This is the vision. 
for his kingdom people, and they need to rock us to the core. They need to teach us. This is what it looks like to be a Jesus follower. This is the kind of work he wants to do in your life, and we need to pause and ask ourselves, how How are we doing with that? Do we know Jesus, and are we reflecting his values and his priorities into the world? Are we letting God lead us to be this type of person? You see the crazy thing about this list we need to highlight in order to understand the next one. The crazy thing about this list, it's all about our interactions with other people. It's how we hang out and deal with and talk with and communicate with other people. Our faith is very much centered on our relationship with God, but then how we treat and how we behave and what we're doing with others, it's all about relationships, which needs to be highlighted because if we live according to the standards of Jesus, verse 10, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's interesting is Jesus has present tense at the first one. If you're poor in spirit, present tense, you're, you can receive the kingdom. Then he goes to the rest. They're all future tense. Whether it happens then or later, God's going to comfort. You'll see him. All these things will be taken care of. But now he goes back to present tense, meaning if you're persecuted because of Jesus, you will receive his kingdom. You're a part of what he's doing. Only two things are present tense, like telling us right now, which means for Christians, well, you're expected to be broken, poor in spirit. It's the only way to receive God. But then evidently, there's something about persecution being promised for the Christian, for pursuing his righteousness, which we talked about. Righteousness is his priority. So if we try to live out the priorities of God and Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted. So a win under Jesus is not about the boats, it's not about the cars, it's not about salt life and everything else. A win under Jesus is living for him with understanding that persecution for living according to him will come. And persecution is hostility, ill treatment because, listen, because we are pursuing the priorities of God. And we need to pause here and remember who Jesus is talking about and who he's talking to. He's not speaking to politicians or powerful people who claim to be martyrs because they talk about nonsense with the faith. Okay, that's not what a martyr is. That's not what persecution is. This is where real people are losing real relationships and real business and perhaps their real life because they're Jesus followers. You see, Jesus didn't go around picketing people who believe different. He didn't go out casting shame on people who were lost. You know what he did with people who were very different than him? He went to their house and ate with them. You know who Jesus called out publicly? The self-righteous religious leaders. And ate dinner with the messed up ones. These are the priorities of Jesus. This is what we need to rediscover about him. You see, Jesus never casted this vision that salvation was going to be at the center of culture or a country. In fact, what Jesus teaches is very countercultural. He expected Christians to be persecuted. So why in the world are we getting upset, folks? When just a teeny bit compared to the world's standards may be happening in our country. Like not even real persecution, I'm just saying, just throwing that out there. We have a 
country that allows all sorts of faiths. But even if we do claim, I've been persecuted for it, Jesus is like, yeah, you're going to be blessed. Happy life. Like, I don't like this very much, Jesus. He's not done talking about it yet. But here's the thing we know. One thing we have to get right is being blessed and being happy doesn't mean you won't have difficulties in life. And we know this to be true. Very difficult things end up having the most blessing. Think about marriage. The only people who think marriage is easy are people who haven't been married. That's it. Everybody else is like, man, this thing is rough. But it can produce and has produced in my life, and I'm sure for many of you, some of the most blessing and the most amazing and happiness and and some of the best things is because of my marriage. Kids? Well, the birth of a baby seems rather difficult, at least for Jessica. I found it pretty easy personally. But babies can bring a tremendous amount of blessing in your life. Until they turn three, then it's over. But college, working out, all of these different things, they are hard, they are difficult. Being a Christian can be hard, it can be difficult. And those things will happen, those things can happen. But Jesus says, hey, that doesn't mean you're not blessed. It doesn't mean you're not going to experience happiness. So we keep this promise in front of us through these hardships, knowing Jesus will show up trusting that he will show up, that we might lose some relationships, we might lose some friendships, we might lose some business opportunities, that Jesus needs to come first. His priorities need to come first. We may lose out, but he promises, hey, you're, you're going to be in my kingdom. I got you. We'll take care of this. But the idea of persecution, well, it might make us cringe, but here's what he says in verse 12 or verse 11. And Blessed are you when people insult you. And persecute you falsely and say all kinds of evil because of me. How many of you feel happy when people do that to you? How many of you feel blessed when people accuse you of things? Accuse you of being evil when you're just trying to live out what Jesus has asked you to do? But Jesus says, oh, blessed. He's not done. Look at 12. Verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad. When these things happen, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way that persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's his idea. He's saying, listen, as Christians, you can expect to be persecuted. As Christians, if you're seeking God's righteousness, you can expect the people to say false things about you, to say the wrong things about you, to accuse you of evil when you were simply doing what God has asked you to do. And who does he bring to mind? The prophets. Folks, who killed the prophets? The, pe- the prophets were sent to their own people. If you remember the Old Testament, the prophets were sent to, to God's people, Israel. Did outside countries kill the prophets or did they kill their own prophets? They killed their own prophets. Right. Jesus is like, yep. You're going to have some difficulties. You're going to have some hardships. Being about my work and doing the things I am, expect this to come. And this might make us cringe, the idea of persecution. I don't like it, this idea of rejoice and be glad. I'm like, Jesus, I'm working on that one. Okay, I'm going to work on it. I'm gonna, we'll do the, the Baptist thing. I'll pray about it. I'll pray about it. Let me pray about it if I like this. 
But he's telling us why, and this is important because so often we look at the Beatitudes, we're like, man, this had to be blessed, this sounds cute, this, let's put it on our wall, let's put it in our bathroom when our guests come in, they think we're super Christians, like, it'll be, it's a really good statement. But these aren't just statements to be hung on walls, because here's where he goes next, and this needs to rock us, here's the point of all this. He's saying, hey, all this is important because this is your purpose, this is my plan, this is why I came, verse 13, he says, by the way, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So the two main purposes of salt in the first century were flavor and um, preservation of food. Just a side note. I remember the first time I went to Tennessee. My cousin, they had a farm, went to Tennessee, and I had real country ham. Have you all ever had real country ham? where it just tastes like eating a salt packet the whole time. I was like, what in the world is, I don't know if my mom never used salt growing up, but I ate that ham. I was like, I can't do this. It tastes like seawater. Moving on. I don't know. I guess that's what they used it for. But salt, although I did not have a positive experience with that ham, salt is seen as a positive thing, right? It adds flavor. It preserves. And so Jesus is saying that a disciple, a follower of his will add value to the world. We are to make the world better, to add flavor to it. Like we are meant for something. We should stand out by our character and our calling in this world and add value to it. But if we lose our saltiness and we're like, I don't know if Jesus knows chemistry very well, but if you remove salt from salt, it's not salt. That's not what Jesus is saying, right? According to scholars, here's what's going on. In the ancient world, salt was rarely pure. And when they collect salt around the Dead Sea, it oftentimes is a mixture of other minerals around it. So the idea is like back then you have this bag of salt that's supposed to be salt, but it has all these other minerals and all this other stuff filling it in. And so it's not really salt anymore. Now it's just a bag of mixed up other elements meaning it's lost its purpose. And so if you get this bag that's no longer distinct, it's, it's no longer salt, and it's no longer good for flavoring, it's no longer good for preserving food, if the salt is just like everything else around them, if you're just like everybody else around you, if you don't have a distinctiveness about you like what Jesus is calling us to be, if you're just like everything else, he says, well, it's easy. Here's what you're good for. Oh, go back. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It's like it's garbage. If the Christian loses the distinctnesses of being a Christ follower into this world, he says it's not good for anything any longer. What are we? You see, Jesus has always been about life transformation and character transformation. This is what it means to be a disciple, that we are to be different in order to make a difference. We are to be different as Christians in order to make a difference. And he's called us, you and me, we, to make a difference in the world on his behalf. He continues, verse 14, to stress this part. He says, you are the light of the world. He doesn't say you're the light of your home. You're the light on Sunday mornings when you come into the sanctuary. You are the light to the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in 
the house. So light brings clarity. Light brings illumination to darkness and confusion. Light points to there being a light source. And Jesus is saying that you and me as Christians, we are to illuminate this dark and chaotic world. And we're like, man, I can't believe what's going on in the world. Jesus is like, are you serious? It's been a mess for a long time. And you, Christian, are to be a light to it, to shine in it, to bring order into chaos, to bring clarity to difficult situations for people who were lost. Jesus has always been clear about his mission, and somewhere along the way, we turn this into just about us. Jesus is like, no, you are the salt. Go add flavor to the world. You are the light. Go bring illumination to the world. And he says, in the same way, here it is, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so the good deeds that he's calling us to do are living out his kingdom values. As we live out the kingdom values of Jesus, it's going to cause us to do good things for other people. And so we are absolutely on the same page. This is for Christians, for church people, for Jesus followers. This is what we are to be known for, doing good deeds to glorify our Father in heaven This is what the church should be known for, folks. And this means, this is important, if you've tuned out, tune back in. This means the whole character development that Jesus is after, the whole character development is not just so you can be a better person and have personal holiness, though that will happen. The purpose is so then you can share your life with other people and impact the world in which we live to bring glory to the Father in heaven, which we should shine in a way and be different in a way that people go, something's different about you. We're like, yeah. We're smiling all the time because nothing bad happens in our lives, right? Okay, we don't have to do that. Like, what's different? Like, Jesus? You're like, I know, but what's really different? No, no, Jesus. You're like, okay. No, but for real. We're like, for real. Jesus. It's about him. It's for him. We should live in a way that people see our lives and point to the wonderful grace that's found in Jesus Christ. Our win as Christians is not for us to have this personal holiness, to create a monastery, to create this cultural Christianity bubble where we're all safe and we're all comfortable and it's us versus the world. Folks, we've already won. Jesus already won. It's over. And so we go and tell people, he's already conquered. He's already defeated. There's no war. He won. It's not us versus anybody. He won. He defeated death. He rose from the grave. He cast a vision. Read Revelation. Tell me if you understand it all, because I don't. But he cast a vision saying, hey, it's all, I got this. I'm coming back. It's going to be good. I got this. So like this idea of us versus them or, or Christians over here and then the world. Folks, that's not what it means to be a Christian. It means to live in a way that people see that Jesus is one, that there's hope, that there's salvation, that there's a purpose and a plan, and he has conquered the grave. 
But before he did that, he died so me and you could live. So our win is not for the approval of others. Our win is not to make people happy. Our win is to live on mission for Jesus Christ and see other people find his grace. Like that's what it means. You must be different in order to make a difference. I want to quickly go over a couple of things. Number one, you must have different priorities. The king's mission must come first. If you're going to be different in order to make a difference, the king's mission must come first. He is the king, and he's gave us a mission, and we need to lay our desires and our wants down at his feet and say, God, here they are. It's not about me. It's about you're the king. Here my desires are. You must have different values, and this is the hard part. It's hard for all of us. You must have different values, seeing other people more important than yourself. That is not easy. Just as salt isn't for itself, just as light isn't for the sake of light, it illuminates other things. It serves other purposes. That's what we are supposed to do. And what we find in Christ, like this is the grand reversal, right? That's what Jesus teaches. It's all a paradox, and you got to work through it. It doesn't seem to be true. But Jesus says the way to truly find happiness is stop focusing on you. The way to truly find happiness is to serve God, love him, give your life to him, submit to him under his authority. Like, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I know, but just trust. Submit to his authority and then go serve other people and love other people. Tell them about the gospel of Jesus. And it's in that you will find happiness. It's in that you will find a blessed life. It's not about you. Like when you focus on you, it leads to darkness and despair and sadness. Jesus says it's the reversal of things. But in order for any of this to even be possible for you, is you must, you must experience a new life through Jesus Christ. You gotta be born again. If none of this makes sense to you, if you're like, I don't understand any of that, you have to understand this first, is that Jesus has come to save you, to give you a new mission, to give you a new purpose, to give you new priorities. And if you don't have those, you may not know him. You may have never truly been saved, which is a submission and a pledging of allegiance to him as your king, as your Lord, as the savior of the world. And so I ask, have you submitted to Jesus Christ? If you have, lay down your priorities for his mission. It's what he commands us all to do. See others as more important. Because he saw others so important that what did he do, folks? What did he do? He got hung on a cross, was beaten and nailed to it, and bled out. Like, let's describe it if we're going to talk about the kind of things he gave up. For us, for you, and for me. And everything that Jesus did pointed back to the Father, and the Father points us to the Son. And everything we need to do as Christians need to point people back to Jesus. I say, man, he can, he can radically change your life. Like, it's this idea of being born again, a new life. Like, he wants to do an inner work in your life through his grace and salvation. So our takeaway today is simply this. As we work through that list of the Beatitudes, what's something you're holding on to? That God's like, look, come on, just give it to me, I got it. What's something you're clinging to that you think you're going to do more with than what he can do if you just let it go? 
What's one thing that's causing you anxiety, stress, anger, and frustration? Because here's the deal. God doesn't cause any of those things. He doesn't call anger. He doesn't call stress or frustration. He may use those things in order to work about a change in your life, but he does not cause those things. And so what is Jesus calling you to give to him? So according to Jesus, that's what a blessed life looks like. That's what it means to live for him. And he dares you and he dares me to walk in it, to trust him. Because there's promises attached to each one. He's like, come on, watch. Find life, come on. Find it in me. You see, the good life comes from your relationship with him. And then it will be seen through your relationship with others. So trust him. Give it to him today because he is far smarter and far greater than any of us. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love and grace. Father, we know you are waiting and willing to help us live out this blessed life. So Father, help us see today the areas in our life that we need to let go of those things we are holding on to, those priorities we are placing over you. Father, help us clearly experience your grace. Help us collectively be the salt and light to the world. We ask you to help us and use us in a powerful way to reach more people with the gospel and help them find Jesus and follow him. Father, we thank you and we love you. It's in the precious name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Will you stand?